Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. Every September 15th is World Lymphoma Awareness Day, whether you knew that or not. And this year, the theme is We Can't Wait. And to honor the leaps and bounds that research into this rare cancer has made, today's podcast will take different lenses on the current state of lymphoma in an in-depth look at lymphoma. Firstly, we talk to Dr. Constantine Tam. He's the head of the lymphoma service at the Alfred Hospital and professor of hematology at the Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. And he talks about the recently published Sequoia trial, which interrogates the efficacy of BTK inhibitor Zanubritinib versus Benamustine and Rituximab in untreated chronic lymphocytic leukemia and small lymphocytic lymphoma, which was recently published in Lancet Oncology. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. After Dr. Tam, we speak with Lorna Warwick, CEO of the Lymphoma Coalition since 2018, based in Canada. They're a federation of over 80 lymphoma patient organizations worldwide, and they run the World Lymphoma Awareness Day project I mentioned earlier. Did you even know that there were over 80 subtypes of the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? I certainly didn't. She has some great insights into the unmet needs of lymphoma patients and how to budge that needle on care. Enjoy listening. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Tam, for being with us. Could you tell me a little bit about the Sequoia trial? What was the unmet need and how did you approach this? So the Sequoia trial was done in patients who are older with frontline COL. And these are patients in need of treatment for their COL who do not who are not fit enough for typical immunochemotherapy such as FCR. The comparison arm is bendamustine rituximab, which is a widely used chemotherapy regimen in Europe, Australia, and North America for patients who are a bit less fit for full dose chemotherapy. And the experimental arm is a new BTK drug, Cosanabrutinib, which is a second generation, more specific BTK drug. And it's a head-to-head comparison, phase three comparison. All right. And can you tell me about BTK inhibition in general and how that might affect this disease biology? So BTK inhibition really started probably only about 10, 11 years ago when ibrutinib, which is the first BTK inhibitor, came into the clinical practice on trials. It interrupts a vital growth pathway in COL cells, and certainly the results of ibrutinib suggested that this was going to be a very important modality, as in patients who have been heavily pretreated and were basically refractory to all available therapies, ibrutinib produced a very high response rate, and patients, in fact, responded durably for a number of years on ibrutinib with minimal side effects. Of course, since then, ibrutinib has then moved on to earlier and earlier lines of therapy, and more recently, ibrutinib has been compared to basically the whole spectrum of frontline chemotherapy, including FCR, bendamustine rituximab, as well as chlorimazole and albendantuzumab. And in all of those comparisons, ibrutinib was shown to be superior. And I think that really enhances BTK inhibition as a key plank of treatment for COL. Where Zanabrutinib is different, it's a evolved version of ibrutinib, so it inhibits BTK at the same site as ibrutinib, but it's more specific and achieves higher drug levels, and therefore has the potential for same or better therapeutic outcomes 
but with less side effects because it's a more specific drug. Right, so there's more power to the punch. There's more power to the punch and the punch is more selective. So you don't hit as many target enzymes. And when we compare sunabrutin against ibrutin in head-to-head studies, and those studies have been done, one in CLL and one in Waldenstrom's, we can see that sunabrutin indeed has a lower rate of cardiovascular complications such as atrial fibrillation and hypertension, which are important side effects of ibrutin. Can you start with the findings that you guys reported? So this is a head-to-head study comparing zanabrutinib versus bendamustine rituximab. So it's a straightforward randomized study with the exception that patients who are identified to have a 17p deletion at baseline, and these are patients where it's unethical to randomize the chemotherapy, those patients were then treated on a non-randomized arm. We call that the ARM-C. But arm A and arm B are patients without 17p deletion and they're randomized head-to-head with continuous zanabrutinib versus a standard six cycles of bendamustine rituximab. And the headline result, which is not really surprising, is that zanabrutinib is far superior compared to bendamustine rituximab in terms of the progression-free survival. The hazard ratio is actually 0.42, meaning that patients who got zanabrutinib had a 58% reduction in the risk of progression on death. And at the 24-month mark, the two-year progression-free survival is 86% for zanabrutinib and 70% for bendamustine rituximab, and the curve continues to separate from there. The headline result is that using zanabrutinib as a frontline treatment for CLL provides a better disease control compared to chemotherapy bendamustine rituximab. Right. Are you waiting for overall survival results as well? Is that not yet mature? The results are very early at the moment and immature for overall survival. In this age where patients can get BDK inhibitors as a salvage after chemotherapy failure, it is possible that the overall survival may in fact never be seen because patients are then salvage BDK inhibitor after they fail bendamustine rituximab. All right, so PFS is a better marker for this efficacy endpoint. Now let's get towards the safety endpoint because I know that that was a big question mark with regard to this trial. In particular, I think the atrial fibrillation, potential to cardiotoxicities were concerning. Could you comment on that, please? Yes, to put this in context, when I prescribe a BDK inhibitor these days, the atrial fibrillation risk is a major consideration in my mind. And every time I bruise it, which is a first-generation drug, has been compared to a chemotherapy control, the rate of atrial fibrillation was higher for the ibrutinib arm. So in this particular study, using a less toxic BDK inhibitor, zanabrutinib, we actually didn't see a difference in the rate of atrial fibrillation, which was actually 3.3% on the zanabrutinib arm and 2.6% in the bendamustine rituximab arm. It doesn't mean that there's no difference, but it means that the difference, if it is there, is so small that it cannot be detected. In terms of the other side effects, BDK inhibitors are a potent antiplatelet agent, so not surprisingly, the risk of bleeding, almost all of which are minor bleeding, is increased in the zanabrutinib arm, but this is a non-side effect of the class, and we know how to deal with that. And of course, bendamustine rituximab was associated with a much higher rate of cytopenias, including neutropenia, as well as thrombocytopenia. Right, and were patients involved at any point during this trial design and or dissemination of the results? It is a sponsored study through Beijing, and I'm not sure what patient consultations have been involved in the design of the study. Certainly, there is much public press and patient enthusiasm in the results of the study because it makes a meaningful difference to patients' life. So I know that amongst my patients' patient forums and a lot of discussion groups that they've got that this study is one that has drawn substantial attention. 
Right. And what are the broader implications? Will this also help, for example, Valdostrom that you mentioned earlier? Most important broader indication is that prior to this study, we had ibrutinib, which we know is better than chemotherapy already for COL, but we're paying the price of ibrutinib in terms of cardiovascular side effects when we do prescribe it. And now we have got a new BDK drug, which once again has been compared against a very good chemotherapy standard in benamustine rituximab and proven to be superior but without a lot of the price you pay for ibrutinib. So I think for patients, they've now got the best of both worlds. They've got both the efficacy of a BDK inhibitor as well as a reduced toxicity with a second generation drug. On a broader note, I think that this is the first trial to really bring BDK inhibitors into the front line of any disease. We know with other diseases such as mental cell lymphoma and Waldenstrom's macrogobinemia that BDK inhibitors are migrating more and more towards the front line because they are very effective in those diseases. And hopefully this will be the first trial to set the scene for other BDK inhibitors, especially on the brutinib, to be used in the front line. And for CLL and SLL, what are some of the other on-the-horizon developments coming up? One of the most exciting developments for CLL and SLL are, of course, the next generations of established drugs that we have. So I didn't touch on venenoclax today, but venenoclax or BCL2 inhibitors are very important. Drug class in CLL acts independently of BDK pathway, and once again, are very good. And there are now more potent, more specific versions of venenoclax which are in clinical development, very similar to what Zanabrutinib is to Ibrutinib. Within the BDK pathway, we now have third generation, what we call reversible inhibitors, which actually bind BDK a site other than the traditional site, which is cysteine-481. So first and second generation drugs, Ibrutinib, Acalabrutinib, and Zanabrutinib, all bind to BDK at the same site. So if you get resistance to one of those drugs, you get resistant to all of them, but there are now third generation reversible BDK that binds at different sites. The front runner is a drug called pertobrutinib, and that drug has been shown without doubt to be effective in CLL, even when ibrutinib and zanabrutinib has failed. And those class of drug are now starting to make their way into the clinic in the form of phase three studies. Wonderful. Do you have any other messages to share with uh, colleague physicians with regard to treating CLL, SLL in general? If I look back on my career in treating CLL, I mean, 10 years ago, I would not have envisioned this world where we have got not one, but two classes of drugs, which are tablets, incredibly effective, non-chemotherapy, and has very few side effects. And I think that it really underscores how much the world has shifted that in 10 years time, that we've gone from chemotherapy to a world where we've got two separate classes of novel agent, both highly effective, and are both starting to be used in the front line. So I think it's a very exciting field, and I'm very happy to have been involved in the evolution of it. It's been a great journey so far, and I think I look forward to the rest of the journey. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Next, I'm really pleased to introduce Lorna Warwick, a colleague of mine for many years and a terrific spokesperson for the lymphoma community. All right, thanks so much, Lorna. I've known you for a long time, but maybe you could just introduce yourself. Of course, I'm Lorna Warwick and I am the CEO of the Lymphoma Coalition. And September 15th is World Lymphoma Awareness Day. Could you tell me about that? What are you guys trying to raise awareness about? On World Lymphoma Awareness Day, we're really at this point trying to actually respond to a few different issues in one campaign, which is a little bit difficult and a little bit different than what we would normally do. But it comes under the umbrella of a campaign called We Can't Wait. 
And there are a few issues within that that are priorities for our organizations that we're working with. One, of course, is just general awareness. Over COVID, the symptoms of lymphoma can actually mimic COVID. We've seen a drop in diagnoses. And it's just, again, to to raise some awareness around general symptoms and encourage people to get checked if they have persistent symptoms that could be a lymphoma. As well, as you and I both know, there have been some implications to cancer care during COVID. And for some areas of the world, really, they're using the campaign to try and encourage regular lymphoma care or better lymphoma care post-pandemic. So what does that mean, right? There has been drops in nursing care available, different access to doctors perhaps than they've had in the past, and in some cases, difficulties accessing medications. And so for them, it really is a case where they can say, we can't wait for these things to be fixed. We have to prioritize them if we want people to be treated the right way with their lymphoma. And for us, just one last thing, we can't wait. And this is something that we're dealing with from a lymphoma coalition perspective. And that comes down to just how we're tracking and talking about lymphomas. And partially, you know, lymphomas are interesting in that just because the first person who was able to identify a lymphoma, Dr. Hodgkin, way, way, way back, was the first one to do it. He was able to get a subtype of lymphoma named after him. Then all the other subtypes, which there's 80 plus, got categorized under a non-Hodgkin lymphoma which means absolutely nothing. So from a patient, they get confused. They think they've been told something really important, and that's what they remember when they're first diagnosed. But if you try to Google non-Hodgkin lymphoma, so many different things come up, and it's confusing for patients. At the same point in time, we actually have names for all those individual subtypes right now, so there's no reason that we couldn't talk about them individually. But historically, we've been in many ways globally tracking lymphomas now as that category of Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And with science getting so much better, technology getting so much better, and we're learning more about those individual subtypes, it's really difficult to go back and look at that retrospective data and have a good understanding of the burden of the disease, of incidence and mortality, and be able to advocate for better care when we don't have a good handle on the number of people that are being affected overall. Right. So those are some of the unmet needs, very important to identify so that they can be addressed. But what are some of the solutions that have been reached in the last few years? Can you give some examples? Yeah. So what we've seen happening, which is great, is when you're looking at new therapies coming to market, at least there are in lymphoma, there's been a lot of active research. So there are a number of new therapies available. And we do have things like CAR-T that is available now for patients that in the past would more than likely have not survived because they had exhausted all of traditional chemotherapies. We are seeing differences then in those kinds of therapies. And truthfully, even though they're they're quite pricey, um, we were making some headway in approvals and getting people more access to these novel therapies, including as well some newer targeted therapies in certain subtypes, which is great to see, right, that there is a better quality of care coming for our patients. 
COVID has some impact on the speed of regulatory approvals, on perhaps some healthcare budgets. So now we're re-looking at, at how we can encourage that continuation of approval of those medicines in a realistic way. When we're looking at things like registries and categorizing any of our lymphomas, we do see an improvement year over year when we ask patients, are you being told your actual subtype? We see those, those numbers going up each time. So it's great to know that patients are getting good information. It's just not everybody gets it. So there's still some room for improvement there, even though it is getting better. We do see organizations like World Health Organization, when they're talking about lymphomas using specific subtypes, which is really great to set the lead that way. But unfortunately, then when you look at data coming from IARC and the Global Cancer Observatory, then they only categorize them by Hodgkin and non-Hodgkin. So it's still work there to do to make all of these things kind of match, right? So that we're not only doing a great job with how our new classifications are coming and how doctors are talking about lymphomas, but how do we then really track the data, but also encourage doctors who perhaps aren't giving very specific information to their patients to actually improve on that and make sure that the information is getting communicated. You know, we do our own research and we have great research that shows that patients that um, are well-informed and have the specific details of their subtype actually have a better overall patient experience. And that transcends, you know, just the fact that, okay, I knew where to go to the ho- in the hospital or, you know, those basic uh, logistical kind of things. But we mean that these patients actually uh, are better at handling their side effects at home, knowing when they need to go into the hospital for advanced care or reached out, reach out for advanced care and what they can handle on their own. They are reporting better overall outcomes of that disease management. So those are important things to make sure our patients have good information. Right. I can imagine that for sure decision-making, you have to know your subtype to enter that discussion, right? Ah, of course. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is not something you can treat. Just ask any hematologist, how do you treat non-Hodgkin lymphoma? You can't. There are over 80 subtypes, you know, and they have different prognoses, different treatment pathways. It's an impossible thing. So for my patient, they actually, they have no choice. They have to know the exact subtype or they're not going to be able to participate in any kind of decision making. All right. And how are molecular subtyping? How is that going along the phenotyping of the actual tumors? Is that keeping up with the patient's needs, I guess? It's a great question. And because, again, so many different subtypes, overall, probably no is the answer. I think we do better with certain subtypes where there is easier testing that can that can get the information for an individual patient that's not as expensive, right? So, and, and I do think it helps as well where clinical practice guidelines are actually outlining what tests should be done and what the results should show. So, if we look at certain subtypes like diffuse large B cell where you know, there can be some differences in how patients are treated, whether they're a germinal center or an activated B cell. And I think that that information is important for for doctors. It doesn't actually necessarily change the first line of treatment all the time, but it can change access to treatments post that. In CLL, we do know, you know, right up front, 
uh, before patients are treated, they recommend that they're tested to see what their genetic mutations might be. And we're now seeing a shift, which is interesting and a little bit more confusing in places like the U.S., where they actually have more widespread access to novel therapies, that they're not necessarily doing the testing anymore because they can automatically prescribe a new targeted therapy for their patients and skip the chemoimmunotherapy that is traditionally been first line. Of course, in other places with public health care systems, you can't skip that step. Even if you would like to put your patient right away on a targeted therapy, oftentimes you need to do the test to prove that they have the bad genetic mutations or the ones with poor outcomes associated with them to actually get that medicine because that's how the indications were written from a funding perspective. And it is creating this little bit of a dichotomy where you'll see when you attend conferences about what doctors recommend. But really, if you're in a country where there are limitations on how you can access medications, you have to do the testing. You can't skip it at this point in time because of the way those indications are written. And so our audience is mostly uh, physicians who listen to this podcast. What kind of messaging do you want to give from the Lymphoma Coalition to the physicians listening to this podcast? Don't assume that your patients will be overwhelmed by too much information. I think doctors try to really curtail what they're giving to patients or at least pace out what they're giving to patients about their disease because they're worried about being overwhelmed. Our data, when we look back retrospectively, for those that don't know, we do a global patient survey every year with thousands of respondents. So we do have a really good data set that we base our work on. But the number of patients who report being overwhelmed by the amount of information they received is very small. It it hovers around 10%. You really need to cater to the broader population, that 90% that said that they were getting either, uh, you know, enough information or they wanted more. And that really is a case of even if the patient doesn't want to read it right at that point in time, giving them either, you know, hard copies, if that's what patients are still looking for, or at least links into websites so they can go find the information they need at a later date. And then making sure you're having those really good two-way conversations with the patients about what is really bothering them at any one time. I do think that patients, in fact, we know patients are much more likely to talk about their medical issues when they speak to a doctor, but they don't report their psychosocial concerns, which may actually be impacting on those medical issues. Things like, you know, their fatigue, even they will not talk about that with their doctor because they think that there is nothing that can be done. But there are things that can help a patient cope with that. And of course, there can be many things that are causing that fatigue in the first place. So that communication ability with your patient is really, really important. Most of our patients say that they would really like their doctor to be their primary source of information. But at the same point in time, they also tell us they often don't understand what has been said to them. And so then they go to the internet, which of course is hit and miss. You can find lots of good and lots of bad information or information that doesn't apply to your specific case on the internet. And then of course they go to patient organizations, which we champion because oftentimes Patient organizations are are keepers of great information and can help direct patients. But really, it is making sure you're having that good communication. I think also doctors think that they have to solve all of the problems, and you don't. 
you really can refer your patients on to other avenues of support to make sure that they're getting all of their concerns addressed. And that can be community resources, including patient organizations or maybe other departments within the hospital. If you have access to a social worker or some kind of psychosocial support or even sometimes people that focus on palliative care who can help patients cope with their side effects and not just those that are at end of life. So there are different resources, again, that doctors could take advantage of and refer their patients on to. Thank you so much. Okay, excellent. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 